Nicholas Gruen, what is a wellbeing framework? Uh, well, the Treasury announced under Ken Henry, I'm not exactly sure when, but, uh, you know, in the early 2000s that it was embracing a wellbeing framework. And I guess this goes back, the basic thinking behind this goes back a long way. Around about the turn of the, the century before that, economists were talking quite a lot about how to build their profession and how... Uh, essentially, money is an input to well-being. Uh, you earn money, you're given money or whatever, and you use it to satisfy your needs. And so there's sort of been debate in the community for a long time about this tension between measuring money, which is what we do with GDP, and whether that is a good measure of the community's well-being. And it tends to be the case that when a an economy has grown steadily for a long time, people start getting a bit antsy and they say, well, look, we're not just, uh, uh, we shouldn't be uh, worrying just about the economy. We should be worried about how much we are directing our economic resources to real human well-being. So it was in that context that, that for instance, the French government established a commission under Nobel Prize winner Amartya Sen, uh, Nobel Prize winner Joe Stiglitz, and a presumer Frenchman called Mr. Fatusi, or no doubt Professor Fatusi, to give them a report on how to manage government to deliver well-being rather than just dollars. Uh, David Cameron get, got in on the act and talked about well-being. And with this, so this was a kind of a global movement. And Ken Henry got the Treasury to say uh, that uh, it was, uh, you know, it adopted a five-point charter, which was supposed to be a, a well-being framework, and they gave speeches about it and so on. Uh, my take on this is that this the the charter was not a bad charter i could have been i think there are some odd things about it but it was a good idea but that it was really a kind of higher level bureaucratic rhetoric and nothing nothing changed so i'm going to be publishing some articles some essays on that subject uh and looking at well-being frameworks in new zealand australia the uk and then at the academic level you're saying it's used bureaucratically in australia so that suggests it's not that effective uh how is it used overseas a little better. It's really the fact that it's taken a bit more seriously. So, uh, Ken, I don't know, you know, I'm not really trying to apportion blame here. In a way, Ken Henry is to be uh, congratulated, I guess, for uh, raising the issue. It seems to me he would have had enough power to have a wellbeing framework actually influence policy a little more, or at least influence the flavour with which uh, he and other senior Treasury officials spoke about how you uh, make policy recommendations with well-being in mind. And that didn't really happen. So that John Fraser, the uh, new-ish Treasury Secretary, about 18 months ago, I think it is now, abolished the well-being framework. And quite a few people were upset about it. But I had a bit of a debate with an ex-Treasury officer on his blog, a guy called Gene Tunney, uh, who's in... Uh, Brisbane. Uh, and I said, well, tell me something that the framework influenced. And he was <laughs> rather didn't come up with anything much. Now, lateral economics runs the Hale Index, the Herald Age Lateral Economics Index of Wellbeing, which tries to take the numbers that go into GDP 
and translate them into uh, and, and correct them for the largest, the most conspicuous ways in which GDP might deviate from well-being. But my interest in writing about this was that the New Zealand Treasury seems to be taking well-being quite a bit more seriously, and they got in touch with me, and we had a pretty interesting several-hour conversation at uh, my office a few or now over a month ago, and I, I basically challenged them. I said, look, you've taken this a lot more seriously than Australia has, but I don't really think it's making, you know, you can't really give me much evidence that it's made a big difference to the way you think about policy. And rather what happens is you tend to think about policy in a pretty similar way, and then you put all these well-being words into your justification. Uh, and I mean, that's something of a caricature. And I think it's absolutely clear that they've done a lot better. They've taken it a lot more seriously than the Australian Treasury. So I respect them for it. Uh, but I still think they've stopped well short of taking it really seriously. And uh, I've also tried to sketch out what that might look like. Two questions here. What sort yep. of issues should uh, the Wellbeing Index uh, take into account? And how can governments actually take it more seriously? Yeah. The thing about this is that if you focus on well-being and you focus on well-being uh, because you're not happy with just focusing on GDP, or the, so far, so good, then the question comes, well, here's a way that you could focus. Well, I mean, one way, one thing that I think a, a sort of utilitarian well-being framework turns up as a policy result, and this was a very common idea at the turn of the 20th century is that a well-being framework tends to suggest and a utilitarian well-being framework tends to suggest that if you take money from the rich and give it to the poor that will improve well-being why because the last dollar of income to the rich meets very much less urgent needs than the last dollar of income to the poor now that's an okay conclusion, I think. At some stage, you might be concerned about incentives and a whole lot of other things. My point in raising that is not to say that therefore wellbeing indexes should lead us to that conclusion, because I think they can lead us to all sorts of conclusions that we can be more confident about before they lead us to that one. The thing about that conclusion is that that will breed a lot of political excitement and contention it will put your well-being framework again, over and against as a contradiction to your other framework and different people have different views. So I think what a well-being framework should do in the first instance before we get to the hard questions is to do something, take a leaf out of the greenhouse policy manual and you'll recall uh, in the your sort of, uh, well, late 90s where there was a lot of talk about no regrets measures. Now, what no regrets measures are, are measures that stack up on one framework and also not only don't do any harm in the other framework, but actually do some good. So once we realised that we re it was a good idea to try and lower carbon emissions, there were lots of things we could do to satisfy that need at the same time as making a lot of economic sense. So changing light bulbs in our house would actually save us money and have really quite large impacts on emissions, not on absolute emissions, but on the relative emissions. In other words, you could cut the emissions from lighting by 
you know, 80, 90 percent as well as saving money. Well, that's a pretty good win-win kind of story. And so that's what I'd like to see people do with wellbeing frameworks. There are oodles of areas where if we focus on wellbeing, we can turn up very large economic gains. If we could address Aboriginal community dysfunction, we would send Aboriginal well-being through the roof because it's about as low as it can get. But we would save ourselves huge amounts of money. We would save ourselves money with policing, with jailing people, with dysfunctional educational systems and health systems, which are incredibly expensive. So that's an example. In the UK, I don't know whether it was their well-being framework, but in the UK, they've pursued a loneliness agenda. One of the things that they, one of the things that is quite clear uh, in the data, is that particularly for older people, loneliness, uh, particularly people whose spouses died, uh, and particularly men, men are less socially well-connected than women. That is a big drag on their well-being. It's a big drag on their health. It's a big drag, ultimately, on the health budget. So addressing those kinds of things can directly benefit loneliness, uh, can directly benefit well-being. But because the way you do it isn't by paying people to go and talk to older people, but by stimulating voluntary social contact and community contact at the community level, it's just pretty cheap. And you will find, I think, and this is an assertion by me, but I'm pretty sure that you will find all sorts of ways in which that saves the budget, most particularly in delaying people's admission to nursing homes. One final example is child protection, which is uh, abuse and neglect of children is a disaster it's growing at twice the rate of the pop of the population of children that we have once you have a child that has to be taken off their parents that child's children is much more likely kind of 90 no probably about a five ten times more likely to have children who will have to be taken off their parents and so on so breaking that cycle is expensive but the cost of the the cost of these things is just going through the roof so those are a whole range of areas where we could these are no regrets measures these are measures that would very powerfully drive well-being very powerfully improve well-being and be very good for our economy it's kind of sad that uh, none of that sort of thinking uh, came out of treasuries certainly the australian treasury's well-being framework and they don't come out with any great vigor in the well-being framework in france or britain or new zealand it's fascinating stuff nicholas grin that is really really that's a really worthy contribution thank you very much for your time thanks very much leon 